Well, hey everybody, welcome to week two, Kent City Baptist Church Online. Today I want to begin with a psalm. This is Psalm 86, and it's a prayer of David. It says, Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I am devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Give me happiness, O Lord, for I give myself to you. Give me happiness. Well, that's what we need. We need happiness. O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. Listen closely to my prayer, O Lord. Hear my urgent cry. And verse 7 says this. I will call to you whenever I'm in trouble. And you will answer me. Well, to begin, I just would say we do have a, a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to praise God because we have a Savior who is incredible. Life's hard, absolutely. But look around. you got your family probably on the couch with you. Blankets pulled up. My son is probably right now drinking a warm cup of cocoa while his mom's yelling at him. So this is great. This is a family time. But our objective is to give you Scripture to be community together through internet, but also to hear some updates on where we're at as a church and to hear from God's word. We're going to continue on our study in Hosea. And I'll be honest with you, this is my favorite chapter in Hosea. This may be one of the most powerful passages in all of the Old Testament, chapter 11. So before we start, we're going to hear a word from uh, the leader of the chairman of our board, the leader of our leadership team, Steve Buckner, and he's going to give a financial update in ways we can help the community. Thanks. Good morning. My name is Steve Buckner. I am chairman of the board here at Kent City Baptist, and we would like to just give you an update uh, where we're at financially in the middle of this uh, to bring you forward to the things that, where our needs are. Uh, we would ask that uh, it goes without saying and it's been said in many times before that we need to reach our community through this and reach the, the elderly and shut-ins first. Um, if there's anything you can do there, I would just encourage you to reach out to them. Um, I have three more points to discuss. Um, we we want to touch on our benevolent fund. Currently, our benevolent fund is funded pretty well, but I'm afraid that with the coming needs that there's going to be uh, a much greater need in that area. And if, if you feel compelled or are able to give to that fund, we would like to see that money come in and be able to meet the needs in our community. And as for our current uh, general fund, um, we've created a buffer that uh, we always tried to maintain for emergencies, and that buffer is in place and it's working. Um, but with the current funding coming in because of the fact that we don't always meet on Sundays and um, people are nervous about their current situations, we have seen a drop in that. And so the buffer that we have created is working well and it's working exactly how it was planned, but there will be an end to that. Um, and we would just ask that if you can continue to give and keep, the, keep strong in our tithe, that that would that that will help us to continue our ministry here and reach the community. The third thing I want to talk about is um, 
that we, we have um, decided to suspend the new building fund giving. And that's in an effort to help us uh, reach our community in a way. And it also is to relieve you from that pressure. If you can't give to it, that is fine at this time. If you've made a commitment to it and can't fulfill that commitment, we understand. And we're going to resume this again when we start to regularly meet. But until that time, don't feel that obligation to have to reach that. Um, be sure to check with uh, the pastors are doing some daily updates. We get a lot of information out through that. And I would ask that you would consider watching those if you can. If you can't, get a grandchild or a child or somebody who knows how to use a computer and be able to catch up and keep up with the things that we post. Um, we also, tonight, this afternoon, from 4 to 5, we're having the prayer walk here at the church. Um, you're encouraged to come. We've, we've set up some social displacement so that people are spread apart. Um, but we're going to come together and pray. Pray for our community, pray for our church, and we would like to see you here. But if you're not able to make it or don't feel comfortable with that, that's fine too. We are not, uh, this isn't a mandated thing or isn't a, even a regular service. It's just a, a time that we're trying to get together and pray. And with that, if you would consider praying and praying for those around you, praying for um, our community and also our country and even the world. Um, God is the answer to this. God has, uh, he will show love through us to the, to, the, to the others. And the people who are scared, that's the thing that's going to bring them uh, safety, is to know Christ and to know that there is a tomorrow no matter what happens. So if you would consider all those things and uh, be in prayer for our church and our leaders in the church, I would appreciate it. So let's pray and continue on. Dear Father, I, I pray that you would just um, use us as a lighthouse to this community in a way that uh, we've never been able to be before. Uh, in a time of crisis, Father, you are the answer, and we need to project that to others. And I pray that you would give us the confidence to move forward boldly with that statement or that, that life and, uh, and just present to others um, how you would want us to meet their needs in any way that we can. In your name I pray, amen. It's a beautiful day. You're enjoying the afternoon sun. It's coming down. You decide to take a walk through town. And as you take a walk through town, you come up to an intersection that has a railroad crossing. The lights are flashing. And the railroad sign goes down. You notice that the railroad's coming this way, and I mean it's barreling. It's fast, coming fast. And as you look, you look down that way, and there's a fork in the road. On one side of the track are five people tied up. You only have mere minutes. You notice that in this fork, there's a lever. If I pull this lever, I can cause the train to switch tracks. However, on the other track, there's a lady tied up. This is what's called the classic case of a moral dilemma. A moral dilemma includes a problem that is very severe. Something has to be done. And in this problem, there's two choices. The first choice is the logical choice, or some people would say the natural choice. In this case, with the train coming, 
some people would say, this is none of your business. You had nothing to do with this. Logically, let it run its course. If five people die, they die. But then you have another side to the moral dilemma. You have an emotional choice. This emotional choice, it's too overwhelming for you to consider five people dying. You've got to do something. And you can do something. If I pull that lever, I will save five, but I'll lose one. And the danger with this moral dilemma is I'm going to be responsible for death either way. So that's the problem of a moral dilemma. There's a heavy cost on both sides. With the logical choice, hey, I could say it's not my fault, but emotionally I got to do something. Either way, there's a heavy cost. Moral dilemmas happen to us all the time. Severe one like this. Or you always get kind of trivial moral dilemmas, but there's still a moral dilemma. You know what I'm talking about. You go into your bedroom, your wife buys a new outfit. She says, does it make me look fat? What do you think? Ah, I, could, uh, I could say, you know, white always makes you look fat. But that's not good because you won't be talking to her for two weeks. Or you could do the emotional choice. Honey, you always look good. Whatever you wear looks good. But it might, for some men, go against their moral conscience. So, you have a dilemma. Today, we're going to be studying Hosea 11 and 12. And in the middle of Hosea 11, we come to God's moral dilemma. I'm going to read from the NLT, which we've been doing all through the series. And I want you to see if you can find what that dilemma is. And then we'll walk through it through the ESV. This is a very important passage of Scripture. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to image of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, <laughs> but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion and when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. 
Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria. And I will bring them home again, says the Lord. It's an amazing passage. But in the middle of chapter 8, we find, I mean chapter 11, we find the dilemma in verse 8. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I give you up? He's in the middle of a dilemma. He's got two choices. One choice is the logical choice. One choice is the emotional choice. And believe it or not, with all of us, he has that dilemma that is going through his mind and his heart towards us. And it's amazing. Let's walk through it. What is the logical choice? The first option is this. He can judge his people to the full extent of the law. He um, talks through here how, you know, Israel, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to devour them. Um, what did it say in chapter 8, verse 7? They've been sowing to the wind. Well, natural outcome should reaping the whirlwind. So you could say this first one is a logic of holiness. God is holy. That means, according to Habakkuk 1.13, He is so pure. He is so pure. Look it up. His eyes cannot look at evil. Holiness to me, what holiness does, is holiness responds in anger to sin. I look at it like this. The, whole, the human body, when cancer comes in, there's only one thing you can do, is that bring chemotherapy or radiation at it to get rid of it. Holiness has to get rid of sin. It's who he is. So the logical uh, perspective of holiness is honestly this. You sin, you pay. That's what this whole chapter is talking about in chapter 11, verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the Baals. Verse 5, they shall not return to Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Why? Because they refuse to return to me. The swords shall rage against their cities. That's verse 6. And consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. Why? Because my people are bent on turning away from me. And then verse 7 at the end says, and though they call out, you know what, I'm not going to raise them up at all. Nope, because God's holy. That's the logic of holiness. That's sort of like, hey, the train's coming on the track. <laughs> it's going to hit those five guys. That's how life is. Romans 3.23, you should know it, the wages of sin is death. You could say it like this, um, since they keep running, they will be given over to Syria. You sin, you pay. Holiness demands a full payment of the law. So the question then, what is death like? In this passage, he saw something at the end of verse 8. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like 
Zeboim because there's a heavy cost for every choice. If God just acts out in holiness, the cost is Adma and Zeboim. Do you know what Adma and Zeboim is? I'll tell you a story. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Lot? And his angels came to see Abraham. And one angel wanted to talk to Abraham and said to Abraham, um, Sodom and Gomorrah is crying out. Because they're so wicked, I can hear the violence of the city crying out to me and I need to do something. So Moses is like, can't you spare them? You remember that? It's this, really, it's a moral dilemma that God and Abraham were working through. Well, Adma and Zeboim were kings that were neighboring Sodom and Gomorrah that joined in with the war of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God finally allowed his wrath to be poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah because they weren't going to repent, Adam and Zeboim also received sulfur and fire and punishment. So you could say this, the logical holiness, you sin, you pay. What is the cost? Wrath. Did you know uh, that that still applies? That still applies. But in God's heart, he cannot allow that. That's why in verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? So he's another choice. His second option is the end of verse 8, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. The second one is his emotional. Do I follow my heart? Do I see that train coming and say, I can't let that happen? I've got to do something. Admin's a boim? And the people that I created, I can't allow that. I can't allow that to happen. So he has the choice of emotion. And in the end of verse 8, my heart recoils. That means my heart, God's heart, it can't do it. It can't just act on holiness. He just can't act on holiness because he also has a side of him that is love. It's love. In this Old Testament uh, verse for love, he uses the word mercy, compassion, is the idea of loving kindness. An uncanny kind of love that nobody else has but God. And so in God's heart, God's heart says, you know what, I, I'm not going to, verse 9, execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Do you know why? Look at verse 1. Because he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved him. He's my child. Then he says in verse 3 and 4, look close at it. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke off their jaws. When they were being pulled to Assyria, they were getting their mouths with these hooks in their jaws, and God was, he's the one that wanted to release them, let them go free. I bent down to feed them. And then he calls them in verse 7, my people. I will not execute my burning anger in verse 9. Why? Listen to what he says. For I am God and not a man. 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion, and the children will come. Jesus has us pray. When he says, here's how you pray, he wants you to pray like this. He wants you to say, our Father. Our Father. Dad. He wants to reach down. You know in John 3.16, for the, for, for the world, it says, for God so loved the world... He's full of love. And this is a perfect father. I was thinking of my own sons. I've got this on my desk, this picture. This is my son Giovanni and my son Joseph. This is them as a little bit older. But I just went to pick up Gio the other day from school. His school has uh, just been canceled. He's got to take home classes via computer. And Gio's not a little boy anymore, not a little fellow anymore. In fact, he was standing next to me yesterday and he said, Look, Dad, I'm two inches taller and I've got a lot more muscles. I wanted to pound that boy. But you know what came to my mind? When he was about this age, I often would get up in the morning and pray at the couch. And when I'd pray on my couch, it would be sometimes six in the morning and he would have this little blue blanket and he would jump up and just sleep on top of me on the couch while I was praying. Just a little kid. That's what I remember. How could I give him up? How could I give my son Joseph up when he would talk to me in the bunk beds all night when I would sing, When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. Those are my boys. God loves you more than you love your own children. More than you love your own children. So, he wants to forgive. He wants to take away that sin, and he does not want to come in anger and wrath. He wants to heal you. He wants to lift you up. Take those hooks set in your jaws and release them and free you up. However, the problem is, remember on every dilemma, there's a cost. You can find the cost right in verse 1. Right in verse 1 of chapter 11. Here's what it says. When Israel's a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see the cost? Right here. Here's the cost. Out of Egypt I called my son. You're probably thinking, what kind of a cost is that? What kind of a cost is that? This is what is called a messianic prophecy. In the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 15, check it out. Matthew 2, 15. It's the story when Joseph and Mary were called. Actually, it's the story when, yeah, Joseph and Mary were told by the angels to rise up and go to Egypt because Herod's coming. And Herod's going to kill these babies. And it says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and the prophet is Hosea, one who speaks for God, out of Egypt I called my son. So you could say, what does this have to do with anything? This is all about God has sent his son to us for a purpose. Earlier, in Matthew chapter 121, you shall call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Wow. 
This is his son, Jesus. And just like the Old Testament, Hosea's story where they're sent to Egypt and they're going to be rescued from Egypt, Mary and Joseph had to go with Jesus and they were going to come out of Egypt. But he was coming to replace Israel and replace us and God's wrath was going to be poured on him instead. That's the whole point. So you have verse 8, chapter 11. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Some verses say it like this. All my compassion is aroused. This is the cost for following God following his heart. He could have, out of holiness, executed just law on us. What would be the result of that? Adma and Zeboim. Fire and sulfur. Wrath. But God looked down on us like a father who created us out of dust, breathed into us a living spirit, and said, They're mine. I'm the one that led them with cords of human kindness. And I'm not like man. I don't want to just I don't want to just abandon them. I'm I'm the Holy One of God. I'm different than mankind. I am full of long-suffering and compassion. So what is the answer to the dilemma? Out of Egypt, I called my son. My son who's named Jesus. Jesus, he's come to save us from our sins. And he died on the cross. He died on the cross because God so loved the world. It's an incredible answer to this dilemma. Personally, I don't understand it. I really don't understand why he loves me this much. Why he would send my son. Like if I had to sacrifice these two boys, these two boys for you, I'm telling you, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. But I think sometimes, even in times like this, when we're not sure about the heart of God or why is life like this, God's compassion is aroused for you. He wants you to come back. It ends by saying, His children shall come trembling. Why would they come trembling? Because in a way, His children are like those five people on that side of the track, and they realize that this train was heading towards them. They deserved it. And out of compassion, He pulled that lever, and on the other track was His Son. Shouldn't that cause you to say, Wow! God, thank you! Thank you! She'd come trembling. I don't know, it's hard to communicate when you're through a TV, you're through technology. But I want you to consider the heart of this God. It says he bent down to Israel to feed him and they didn't want him. He kept being patient and they still didn't want him. And the only way he could get their attention as he had to send his son. His own son. For you. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. You need, you need to really, what I would say, meditate on it and dwell on it. Chapter 11, even itself, or chapter 12, continues the beauty of it. And chapter 12 even says that um, even though the people are like, crafty merchants 
And even though Israel's cheating, it says in verse 8, verse 6, come back to God. Come back to God. Act with love and justice. And it says always depend on him. That's the NLT. Always depend on him. Come trembling. I want to finish with a story. And it's a, one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I used to watch it all the time as a little kid and when it would be on, my sisters and I would get on our pajamas and get our blankets and lie down in front of the TV and we would, I mean, we would get popcorn. My mom would make popcorn and put it in a big paper bag and put some butter on there that she boiled over the, the stove and we'd shake it with salt. And it was, of course, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with the golden tickets. You know the story. You get a candy bar, and in the candy bar is a golden ticket. If you have a golden ticket, you get to go to the Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And then if you go through the whole Chocolate Factory, and you're successful through the trip, you get a lifetime supply of chocolate. Well, you had some rotten people in there, some rotten kids, like Mike TV. He was just a kid that drove you crazy. Or you had uh, Veruca Salt or some other, some other people like this, some pudgy kid from Germany who just ate and ate and ate. But then you had Charlie Bucket. Charlie Bucket was a nice kid, a poor kid. He lived with both of his grandparents who were sleeping on a big bed. You know the story. Charlie Bucket, you're for him. So when you watch it, I imagined myself to be like Charlie Bucket. I understood Charlie Bucket. His hair was just like mine, kind of matted down in a 1970s look, kind of swooping over. And uh, Charlie Bucket was a nice guy. And as he went through, him and his grandpa, they enjoyed the chocolate factory while everybody's getting sucked through chocolate tubes and everything. It's kind of funny. But then they drank the fizzy lifting drink. And when everybody left the room, they drank the fizzy lifting drink. And in my heart, it's weird when I watch it, I, I'm like, don't drink that, but they drank it. And it started bringing them to the top. And there's this fan that was going to kill them and they had to touch the sides. And they started burping and they went down and they finally got saved. Then they went to this one room and they got an everlasting gobstopper from Slug, Slug, Slugworth or something like that. And they put it in their pocket. Because you can suck on it, suck on it, and it never loses its shape. Well, at the very end, they're the only ones that survived. And Willy Wonka went into a study. He walked in the study. Where did study ever saw? Everything's cut in half. Even the clock, it, it's clicking and it's cut in half. Click, click, click. And then so Grandpa Charlie says, so, did we win? And Willy Wonka says, did we win what? Did you win what? The lifetime supply of chocolate. He said, no, sorry, it's over, you're done. And he said, well, you said we win. He said, no. And he brings out this contract and he said, you broke the rules. You signed the contract, you stole fizzy lifting drink, you touched the walls, you contaminated it, you get nothing, sir, nothing. And Uncle Charlie's mad and they walk out and they say, well, then we'll get Slugworth that gobstopper. And then Charlie stops at the door. And he starts thinking. And he realized he couldn't take it. So he goes back and he said, Mr. Wonka puts it on there. And he gives him that gobstopper. Willy Wonka turns around and goes, Charlie, 
You won. You won. You won. I was testing you, Charlie, and Slugworth was a plant, and the whole thing was a test. And because Charlie repented, even though in a way he didn't deserve anything, Willy Wonka really did want him to win. He wanted him to win. And then they go into that elevator that could go sideways, upways, downways, and it flew over the city. And he looks at Charlie at the end and he says this, Don't forget, Charlie. What happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted? And Charlie said, well, well, what happened? And he said, he lived happily ever after. Charlie didn't deserve a thing. Charlie broke the rules. But Willy Wonka loved him. It's a simple little story, but even as a kid, I'm like, oh, if I would have won that, but I did. I won that. Jesus died for me. He died for me. The moral dilemma was I didn't deserve a thing. I really didn't. The logical train should have destroyed me. But God, through that lever, pulled the lever, and his son came out of Egypt, and his son willingly went to the railroad tracks, and his son willingly died for me. The question is, are you one of the five on that track? Did he die for you too? Or do you not care? I think this is a time that we should rejoice. Every day we should rejoice. You could say this is a terrible, terrible time. <laughs> Breathe in. <sighs> Did you get food this afternoon? Absolutely. God's compassion is aroused. He loves you. And he sent his son for you. So let us rejoice and be glad in him. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. It um, speaks, speaks to me. And it's something we need to hear in a time like this. That there still is a God on high. And boy, is he full of love. He's so good. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So go in grace. See you next week. God bless.